As I said, I am, I'm the left-hand member of the teaching team. I saw that party got to be the, uh, the right side. Uh, he's a great guy. I don't know if you guys uh, know him very well because uh, I, I go to church somewhere else. So I'm not here on my off weeks. But I, that group of men, it's really a privilege to be a part of. And I've, I've known most of them for a very long time. And uh, just funny the way that God has even brought them in my life, especially Ben here. I met Ben just downtown one day, and he was wearing, a, um, I think it was Asbury. Was it Asbury? I don't know, some seminary. Yep, I once, I once played a show at Asbury. We're like this. And, uh, and so we just started up a conversation, and, and in the context of the conversation, he described the church he was looking for. And as much as I wanted to recruit him to the church that I went to, this was the church that fit his description. I said, well, you know, you got to check out. And then I said Brookside anyway. No, I didn't. I, I said I'm off here. And, then, uh, and so it's just really fun to see how God plants and how God has built our town. And it's a funny thing. I'm a Clevelander, and, and when I go home, there's pieces of my culture and myself that just really match there. Kind of the underdog attitude, the we're used to losing problem. Uh, you laugh, it's a real thing. Clevelanders are actually used to losing, and uh, they expect it. And, uh, and so there's a culture to Bowling Green that I'm able to see and feel sometimes because I feel uh, the ability to catch it as it's not mine. But there's a real love of the saints here. There's a real joining together that has really mattered. And men and women who hate this town, because people come to this town for college and graduate school, and they will complain about the wind that's too lazy to go around you, so it just goes straight through you. And, and they'll complain about uh, maybe not being the most visually attractive place that one has ever been. But what will happen is they'll leave, and they'll go to somewhere like Denver, and talk about how amazing it is, and then complain that they can't pick up all the people here and take them with them. Like, I love it here. The mountains are great. I love all the hiking. I just wish I could take the people with me. And that's how I feel about Bowling Green, and it's a privilege to be a part of you. Well, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. We're talking about this ability of the human soul to practice moving toward God. And there's always a fear when we use these, this term, the spiritual disciplines, that they will have a sense of you being forced to or have to. And as I was preparing, I was thinking about years ago, we had a group of three children who we were fostering, who the little guy, he was seven, I think, but the girls were 10 and 11, and then by the year they were gone, they were 11 and 12. So they're moving into their preteen years, and they were boy crazy, and they thought, I was a moron. And sometimes what I would do to try to convince them that I might know what I'm talking about, I would open up my computer and show them my, day, my, my schedule, which was loaded with students' names who had asked me for time. I work in college ministry, and I would try to explain to the girls, do you think that college, I mean, look at how many college students here are asking for my time. Clearly, I must know something about life. I was looking for some resume builder that might convince them that I knew what I was talking about when I told them they didn't need a boy to feel good about themselves. The fact is, they had been raised to believe that life worked very poorly. So here we're going to start this one. I'm on this time. It's your fault. Next. <laughs> All right. Ah, there you go. They knew their life wasn't working right. They'd complain. We'd talk about a lot of things. 
And, uh, you know, your heart just, you're in foster care and adoption. Your heart is breaking all the time. But I tried to convince them that I knew how life works. And I had all these things to, to prove that I know how life works, including the fact that my life was working. Well, how much more so, Jesus? And I mean really how much more so. That we might be uh, accustomed to thinking of Jesus as Savior and Lord, but might fail to think of Jesus as the smartest man who has ever existed. If Jesus had gone into physics, he would have been Einstein, except for more. If Jesus had gone, because he's just smart. He is the most brilliant person who has ever lived. And what he bent his mind and his time around is how to live life right. Not how to live right life virtuously or in some way that said, I can feel good about me, but how to live it in a way that actually internally worked and brought the joy of the Lord and brought you close to God and to other people and made you feel like this is it. This is life working. But as we survey the church, we're finding lots of people who claim Jesus at one level or another, but aren't finding that he knows what he's talking about. We're like, we're like my foster children who would look at me and they loved me and they were thankful to have me. But when I tried to teach them how to live life, they thought I was a moron. I see the church doing that to Jesus. I have a friend who was telling me recently about, about her coworker. We were in one of those social situations where she was talking about her coworker who was just a flaming train wreck. It's gone through relationship after relationships, blown up a couple of marriages. Her teenage boys really don't like her. There's a lot of things going wrong in her life. And, uh, and my friend says, you know, the thing that surprised me, because I didn't know this about her, she said, in just the context of social work, she said, uh, concerning another person, oh, I know that person. She goes to my Bible study. My wife was blown away. She goes to a Bible study? And the question floats in my wife's mind, and it really, really haunts her because her husband works in ministry. Is it that she's ignored what the Bible study has told her, or are, is it that we as the church, and this is where it comes down, I want to critique her friend, it's not the problem, but is it, might it be that we as the church are talking about the wrong things? That we have put so much work into exalting Jesus as Lord, which is our first and primary objective and ought to be always, but that we've forgotten to take him as master and teacher the one who knows how to make life work. So I got this. Greg did this for me. This is really great. I was floating around on Facebook, and I saw this headline. This here. This actually happened in 2012 in Italy. There was a guy who was arrested for stealing, and, and he was to be sent to prison, but he was given the choice to instead live with the Capuchin monks. And who doesn't want to go to jail? I mean, jail. So he, this guy obviously chooses the monks because that must be better, right? And he's with them for, I think it was a month before he escaped, went straight to the police and said, nah, 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 send me to prison. Think about this for a moment. Because the monks are there because they want to be. There's something about practicing the way of the Lord that is utterly exciting to them. And, and they have chosen to reject the ways that other people think life should work. And because they get to, because they've chosen it, they find the joy of the Lord there. And then this guy has to. He's made to. He's not given a choice. And in doing so, he's found it to be a fate worse than prison. This is how the spiritual disciplines work. If anybody attempts to put them on you, 
When I told my little teenage or preteen girls that they weren't allowed to date boys, it was a fate worse than prison to them. I mean, really, I would get this look. <sighs> I try to say, don't you see? Don't you see that the reason that you want a boyfriend is it'll make you feel good about you? But no boy can do that. No, they didn't see, because that's how it works. But uh, so as we dive into the, the, the disciplines, and we'll continue to um, in the coming weeks, I want you to be very careful how you approach them, because they are the opportunity to experience the life of God. They're the opportunity to answer the question, why isn't life working? And God has given you opportunities to practice doing life like Jesus. So instead of waiting for the big calamities to come and then go, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? We actually, before the calamities come and before the problems come, when we ask ourselves, how do I want to live life? We say, I know what I want to try. I want to try practicing living life like Jesus and find what he thinks life is. And so today, I want to jump into this practice of servanthood. But in order to do it, I need a, a short run-up. We're going to look at John 13. If you've got a Bible, please feel free to turn there. Let's see if I can get it to work. ha, <laughs> ha buttons. Okay. The people listening at home on the CD are wondering what buttons are. It's our secret. You made it today. You get to enjoy the joke. They'll just have to live without. Here we go. This is Psalm 110, and it's one of the Psalms that developed in the, in the Jewish mind the notion of what Messiah would be. And it says here, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemy. And Psalm 110 goes on. It's actually quoted six times in the New Testament, this psalm. It's one of the clearest messianic messages you can get. And it developed in the, in the Jewish mind the expectation that the conquering Lord Messiah was going to come and press all his enemies under their feet because that's something Messiah is going to accomplish. And you, you probably are aware of this. They're in the Jewish mind, they were waiting for conquering King Messiah. This Messiah, however, was a little bit more difficult to grab hold of. This is from Isaiah 53. And, and just to quote a couple of verses to give you the, the broad scope. Again, I want to spend time in John 13 today. But this one surely is born our grief. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. The one who would suffer? There was actually, uh, in, the, in the centuries before Jesus, a, a theory that was developed that there was going to be both the son of David and a son of Joseph. Because the servant passages that dominate the second half of Isaiah did not paint a conquering king picture. And of course, Joseph is this part of their patriarchal structure, the suffering one, the one who had gotten sold by his brothers into slavery and dumped by Potiphar into prison. The son of Joseph picture was difficult to imagine could be the same person as the son of David. And Jesus' disciples had to ask those questions. And so as we go in... I'm going to want to develop, because you guys are in the Christian side of this thing. We know it's the same person. We know Jesus died for our sins. But I want to continue to develop your picture of Messiah, your picture of Jesus. And I want to root out the subtle ways that we still wrestle with these pictures. And so let's jump into John 13. It says here that before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour was come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. So here's Jesus. And John's introduction to the Last Supper is Jesus having a profound and deep feeling of compassionate, caring, want to love for his disciples. And during the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and uh, that's actually a comma there, I apologize, I wanted to stop here because gospel writers do not give extraneous details. You know, you, you read a novel today, and, and um, <laughs> when I read Lord of the Rings to, to my wife when she was... Uh, when our daughter was born and she was figuring out how to mom and we're just enjoying life and, and, and I'm reading it. I would come to these passages where Tolkien would spend three and four paragraphs destri- describing the trees and the landscape roundabout. And I came to figure out pretty quick that my wife's eyes were rolling into the back of her head when I did it, so I just skipped them. Made the book shorter. That's a long book, right? Disciple, or the disciples didn't add those extraneous details. If they put them in there, it's because they're trying to develop a very specific picture for you. And John adds Judas into this picture because we're about to have three people. We're about to have Jesus. And, and if you know the story where it's going, Peter is going to be prominently displayed. But first he writes Judas because we have the one who is responding to Jesus' love by wanting to betray him. And again, we don't have time to develop the whole picture. But if you know the story, you know that Jesus continues to do things that defy Judas's picture of Messiah. So that's one of our participants in this play. The one who sees Jesus' course of actions. Now remember, he's seen Jesus heal people. He's seen Jesus do incredibly powerful things. He has seen Jesus walk on water. He's seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He has seen Jesus raise people from the dead. This is not a person who thinks that Jesus has nothing going on. It's a person who thinks Jesus has the wrong things going on. And utterly disgusted, Judas is turned away. Well, going on Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus knows his identity. He knows what he's about. He sees the whole picture, rose up from supper, and he laid aside his, his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around them. Jesus, the foot-washing servant. I want to really take a moment. This isn't probably the most important thing in the passage, but given that we're talking about spiritual disciplines, I want to really illustrate something here. Jesus does not need to wash anyone's feet to prove he's a servant. The cross is ultimately sufficient for that. As a matter of fact, if Jesus did no other service in this whole entire world except to die for our sins, that would have still been the infinitely greatest service that has ever happened. Jesus does not need to model something. However, it is his very nature. He cannot help but model it because it is the way he is. And the thing that I want you to be getting with spiritual disciplines is that if Jesus is not the type who washes feet, then he'll never be the type who crucifies on crosses. I'm pretty sure that's not verb tense-ishness okay. That if he's not the kind who lovingly serves the children who come to him, he's not the type who will be the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Thy will be done, Father. And if you are not the type who are practicing being like Jesus at the small things, 
I promise you will never do the great things. Later on in the supper, we won't get it today. Jesus is going to say, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. And so we're walking around through life, just waiting for a friend to be in front of a bus. And we go, bah! and we saved him, and, and we laid down our life. Whew, I got to do some great love in there. But if you are not the type who washes somebody's dishes for them, even though it's their turn, you'll never be the type who jumps in front of buses. Or does the giving up of your life that really matters, the practice sets you up for game time? Imagine you're on a sports team and you have two opponents to choose from. One has a great coach and practices all the time, but there's another one that has realized how stupid practice is. Because I want you to think about this for a moment. If you ever played sports, did you realize that not one thing you didn't practice gave you a point in the game? Like, if you were a basketball player, you did not come to game time and have the referees tally up your hours of practice and say, well, you guys practice 10 hours, we're going to set you 10 points ahead. Good work. You came to game time, they gave you zero points for all that practice you did. They gave you nothing for it. But I bet it helped in the game. This is how spiritual discipline, they're actually spiritual practices. I really think that we could call them practices and we'll be way better off to recognize When you practice being like Jesus at the little things, you'll be prepared in the big things. Jesus always is a foot washer. So we go on. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? So I had Judas, the betrayer, the one who's utterly disgusted with this Messiah. Now I've got Peter who also is struggling to understand Messiah. And he's not very comfortable with having his feet washed. If you've ever been to a foot washing, most people will say that having your feet washed is far more uncomfortable than doing the washing. Doing the washing's a little bit gross. People have feet. Sometimes they're, they're feet. But when you have it done to you, it can feel utterly humiliating to have somebody tenderly caring for you in that way. And Peter's not ready for it. And, and so, and Peter often has trouble with Jesus being the servant, at least through the Gospels. Later on, he loves it about Jesus. What are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus answers him. What I'm doing, you're not going to understand now. But afterward, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Man, I love Peter. And uh, really, he's gonna, I'm going to stand you down, Jesus. You're wrong. I'm right. I wish I didn't do that, but I do. Mm. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus, I'm more than happy to wash your feet. You're the Lord. Of course I should be washing your feet. I should be worshiping you. I should be bowing down to you. You should be exalted, and I should be serving. That's how it's supposed to be. And Jesus is saying utterly to him, Peter, if that's the kind of Messiah you think I am, then you're not worshiping me. You have a a different God who is nothing like me. If that's the God you want, you're going to have to pick a different one. If you want me to be your God, you're going to have to let me wash your feet because that's kind of God I am, the kind of Savior I am, the kind of Lord I am, the kind of Master I am, the kind of Messiah I am. Well, I can't have a place with you. Lord, not my feet also, but also my hands and my head. This is a high priest reference. Before the high priest would go in to do work, his ear, his hand, his feet, sort of what I hear, what I do, where I go. So Peter is making this reference like, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, maybe this is a high priest thing. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed, in other words, you're already good to go, doesn't need to wash except for his feet. You've been walking around. You guys know the implications. 
cow poop being available in the streets in such a world. Actually, honestly, like in those uh, in Rome, they would have sidewalks and at where they would have street crossings, they would have stones set so that the wagon, uh, the wagon wheels could go across the stones, uh, you know, like roll through them, and that you could walk across so you could be raised above the street. But most places didn't have such high technology. You just kind of walked through it. So we got the feet problem. But if you wash your feet, you're clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So Jesus, once again is referencing Judas. John is making sure you have not lost sight of Judas's role and Peter's role in this because Jesus knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. All the players are set in place. And when they washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I've done here? And I like to think there was the pause and that blank look that teachers get that says, no, I really have no idea. I added that, though, so we'll just stay in the Scripture here. So, so that's, how I, that's how I read it, or how I imagine it in my head. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. You call me teacher and Lord. Lord, master, the one who bosses us around and we obey him, but also teacher, the one who shows us how it's done. He tells us things and we learn from him. We need Jesus to be our teacher and our Lord, our Lord and our teacher. You're right, for so I am. So if I then, your Lord and your teacher, your boss and the one who's showing you how it's done, if I have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Our spiritual disciplines, our spiritual practices must be copies of Jesus. We must look intently into his character, his actions, his practices, his way of being and say, that's the greatest example. I want to act like him. I want to try out his methods. And so he's like, if I'm willing to do this, if I'm showing you this is how life's done, don't you think it'll work for you? Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not if you know these things, the Father will give you a gold star on your Sunday school chart. I don't know if you guys still do that. You know, when I was a kid, would come back to Sunday school, if I memorized the verse from last week, there was Stevie and then a gold star is going across, you know, the little stickers. But the God, that's not what God's saying, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's actually saying, if you know these things, and, and, and if you do them, blessed. Your life will work. You will be partaking in the condition of the good life if you do them. But back to my prisoner. Because if I make you wash feet, you're just a slave. If I make you wash feet, you are just the prisoner with the capuchin monks. But if you choose it, if you practice it, you find the good life. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Once more, Judas is brought back into the picture because if Jesus is going to show us this life and if John's going to write about it, he wants you to see the one who has experienced Jesus and is refusing it. The third mention of Judas in this, in this narrative, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, sends, receives the reading. The one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who has sent me. This is it. 
As you go out and you practice being like me, the world will receive you and me or they'll reject both. That's up to them. So let's sum this up. Uh, just so you know, by the way, where the text is going to go, the, the, the Last Supper is very long in the Gospel of John. But immediately, John writes the, the narrative of Judas leaving. And then the next thing, Jesus gives his disciples the great command to love one another. So what he's just put into physical practice begins to tangibly play out through the Last Supper. So let's, let's sum this up. Judas' Messiah, the Messiah that Judas believes in, enhances your life. And some of us love the idea of a Messiah whose job it is to come in and make your life better. Judas imagined a Messiah who was going to take a throne, put on a crown, and he's got 12 disciples who are going to be the 12 arch lords over all, and they're going to be the royal court, sort of like King Arthur's court. I imagine Judas loves the idea of a round table where no one's at the head of the table, but Jesus is at the head of the table. And Judas wants a Messiah who walks into your life and fixes everything, makes it all good, and really... He's sort of like a cosmic genie, really. You rub the lamp with a few good things, you do the right things, and he just produces whatever your heart wishes. Many love Judas' Messiah. We see them in the TV preachers sometime, these people who will, who will sell you the great opportunity to find a God who wants nothing more than to be at your beck and call. Judas' Messiah has nothing to do with the real Messiah. Then we have Peter's Messiah, and not Peter as the one who wrote 1 Peter, but the Peter who is struggling to fully understand Jesus in the gospel. And remember, Peter's the great one who, on who Christ builds the church. This isn't the guy who's got it wrong. This is the guy who's struggling to understand. And Peter's position of Messiah is utterly redeemable, as we find out in the gospel, but not, the, not through the easy way. I mean, there's going to come the part where he denies Christ, and then he's going to weep, and Jesus is going to go find him. And... But the, the Messiah that Peter has in this passage is the one who demands your life. He's the overlord Messiah who looks down at you and says, you obey, I'll be the one who everyone bows down to, and you be the one who is the servant. He acts, Peter's Messiah acts like the kings of old. And that's not either the real Messiah. Jesus, the true Messiah, beckons you to join him and to find life. He washes feet that you may wash feet. He dies on the cross that you might take up your cross and follow him. He fasts, as we started with last week, that you might be one who tries out these spiritual practices to find the things that he found. He practices aloneness. He, he spends time away from, uh, from people to spend time with the Father. He go on and on at how he lives life, but he did it, A, because it's his very nature, and B, because he wants to do it with you, to join him, to follow him, and to find life. I've put so little work today into actually telling you how to serve, and instead have put all my work into demonstrating the greatest servant, and suggesting if you want to be Christian, you want life to work, practice being like him. That might sound sacrilegious. A little blasphemous. I'm going to act like Jesus. But actually, it's what he's asked you to do. He says it. Try acting like me. See if it works for you. And it really will. So just a couple practical things to wrap up here. Number one, lay down your rights. And I mean it. We're Americans. We love our rights. And I'm not asking you to lay down your political rights. I think that's a bad idea. I'm asking you to lay down your personal rights. 
I have the right to a clean house. Nope. I have the right because I worked hard today to come home to a warm cook. Nope. I have the right because I've treated you kindly for you to nope. When I'm driving down the road, I have the right to the left-hand lane to actually move past the right-hand lane and for you not to drive past the semi. And it's really hard for me to lay down this one. Seriously, can you just pass that? But nope. The servant lays down his or her life, his rights. You have none if you want the good life. The good life, the rights are not the path they promise to be. If I have my rights, I'll get my stuff, and I get my stuff, I'll be happy. And Christ says, if you lay down your rights in order to love others, you will be happy. They're opposite ways. Well, the second one, seek to do the right thing. Oh, you took it out. (laughs) Not the rights thing. Here's what I mean. Because sometimes when people think, i got to lay down my rights, that's like the ditch over here. And so if I can get up out of this ditch, I'll have no rights. We skitter across this ditch into people over here abusing us and walking over us and hurting us. And that's not what is being asked of you. But actually that you would stand and say, just do the right thing. In other words, if somebody could step outside impartially, look at it and say, I have no horse in this race. I'm just going to tell you how life should work. And by the way, have you ever noticed when other people bring their problems, if you have no interest in them, it's usually pretty easy to figure out the right thing. Oh, it's that one, duh. But when you're in the situation and you have rights, it's incredibly difficult. But if you've laid down your rights, you will actually increasingly have the ability to say, this is the right thing to do. You know, I've been, uh, I mean, we're not super great buddies, but I've been friends with Al and Craig long enough to know that they've had to fire people in love. And laying down their rights might have sounded a little like, well, I guess I'll just let them walk all over me and destroy my business and be, no, no, they had to do the right thing. They weren't going to be walked over. But by laying down their rights, they actually thought, Lord, what would you want? And attempted to do the right thing, not their rights thing, which I loved the play on words. But my compiler didn't like me today. All right, so here we go. By the way, can we go back to that uh, magazine article, how awesome that was? I literally just wrote a headline and said, Greg, this was a headline. Make it look cool. And he did that cool newspaper thing. So, so we got to give him his love there too. Number three here, lay down your interests to bless others. So this isn't just some sort of like, I have to lay down my rights. It's actually my rights are in the way. They are keeping me back. They're holding me back like, like me trying to get to this opportunity to bless you. I want to bless you. I want to see you blessed. I want to see you come alive with the joy of having somebody love you. I love it when that happens, but if my rights are in the way, I've got to throw them back because they're in my way to this grand opportunity to be the servant who blesses you. Study the one another's. There's a real practical one here. In the New Testament, there are 56 passages that use the term one another. And the sum force of them is overwhelming. So just as a free, and you just Google the one another's, and it'll it'll pop right up. But just to give you a quick sample of what this servanthood will look like played out throughout the passage, be at peace with one another. That's easy to do when you're at peace with me, but if you're making problems in my life, there's a part of me that wants to go to war, and God says, what if I chose peace instead? What if I serve you in that way? Honor one another above yourselves. But I like my name being great. I have to continually kill the part of me that loves the greatness of the name Steve Risky. And it's not that great a name, really. But there's even silly things like, uh, 
I like being a little bit legendary in the students' eyes where they wonder, you know, when I was in college, people wondered if I ever slept. I liked that. I did. I just didn't tell them when. I went, I went to my room and slept. I mean, yes, I sleep, but, but if, if people thought I didn't sleep, all the better because I was in love with the greatness of myself. Still am. Still have to kill it daily, right? Stop passing judgment on one another. Carry one another's burdens. Submit, 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 submit. Submit to one another. Ooh, this one. Let's start with the big bad baddie. The Ephesians 5 wives submit to your husbands. And let's go all the way through what we've said today. If wives submit to your husbands is a command jammed on top of a woman, like you have to if you don't, God doesn't like you, and you're actually a sinner, and also we probably won't let you come to church. If, I don't know where that voice just came from, by the way. If that is what is being asked of a wife before she ever gets the chance to freely give her husband love, she will be like the thief jammed into the monastery. That is why so many women have regarded submission as a prison worse than prison. What if it was her free chance to give? What if she actually was taught to love her husband because she really loves him and goes, how can I love him? And she finds that this free gift she gives by laying down her rights, they are her rights that no one's removing him, but she actually has chosen because she loves him. And and she finds this great joy in seeing him loved and she finds the Christ life. Well, if that's asked of wives in verse 22, what about in 21 where it says submit one to the other? I'm disgusted, disgusted when Christian leaders refuse to submit to one another. When they think their rights, when they think their, their, their theological vantage point on some niggling point of the gospel overruns Christ's command to serve one another. The greatest men I have known have been the greatest servants. They love submitting to others even when they have rights because they see it as the gospel. Long before we should be getting into specific situations like husbands and wives, a very culture should be that of submitting to one another because it's a party, because it's fun, because it's amazing. Forgiving one another, the whole sermon could be done on that. Pray for one another. You see the one another's? That's, that's just a quick sample of them. Honestly, so going back to the list, uh, we had lay down your rights, seek to do the right thing, study one another's, and finally, share your experience with the Father and others. Seriously, share your experience with God. God, this is what it was like for me to try that. What do you think? What was this like for Jesus? And then talk to each other. These things should never be practiced in a little silo. Although Jesus talks about praying in a closet and everything else like that, He's referring to the ability to brag to others about it. But when we share with one another, what's that like for you, Grant? What's it like for you guys? How's that been? We actually build one another up. Simple, practical stuff. I dare you to try it. Not because you have to. Not because someone's locked you into the prison of the spiritual practices. But because you're interested in seeing if Jesus knows how to party. Thanks for having me these two weeks, guys.